0: Welcome back to another episode of the DD geopolitics podcast. I am joined today by my wonderful co-host Lydia and finally JM back from the depths. Our guest today needs no introduction for our listeners. It is everyone's favorite inspector and former Marine Corps intelligence officer, Scott Ritter. Scott, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for, um, for putting this on and inviting me.
0: Absolutely. So, um, for our listeners, Scott was a prior weapons inspector in Iraq. So I wanted to kind of ask you about what lessons you learned in Iraq, because right now we're seeing an uptick in attacks or, you know, uh, drone drones in the around the U.S. bases in Iraq. So these Iraqi resistance groups are kind of lesser known militias. What do you know about them and what can you tell us about them? Because they're operating throughout Syria and Iraq from what we're seeing in the news cycle?
1: Well, I mean, to to be honest, when I was in Iraq from 1991 to 1998 as a weapons inspector, and then um, I made two more trips uh, back to Iraq, one in 2000, 2000, and uh, the other in uh, 2002. Um, This predated the American invasion and the American occupation and the creation of a uh, of a resistance that was founded in um sort of a pro-iranian uh, Shia um you know school of thought uh, of course there was AQI uh, uh the Sunni based uh, then uh, you know uh, resistance uh, al qaeda iraq uh and then that morphed into ISIS um but the militias that are um have taken the forefront today are these pro-Shia militias, pro-Iranian militias um, that I don't have any direct knowledge of. I can't sit here and claim, if they were ISIS or uh, or AQI, I could at least uh, pretend to say that uh, at one time I, I knew some of the people that might be involved in them, because many of the uh, the, the core fighters, um, the, the officers, so to speak, uh, came from um, You know, Saddam Hussein's Special Republican Guard uh, from the Special Security Organization, from Iraqi intelligence, uh, sort of a Ba'athist core element that uh, had made a rough alliance with AQI and then later ISIS. If one recalls, when ISIS moved down from Mosul uh, towards Baghdad, going through Tikrit, uh, the, um, you you know, suddenly the nature of the battle changed and this became very much a Ba'athist fight. Uh, but. you know so I, I i just have to preface that's a long preface i'll try and keep my answer shorter but uh that's a long preface of, of 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 saying that uh i only know about these militias what everybody else knows um what you've read you know and hopefully if you're you know that you will do the 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 research Um, these militias they they come from two primary sources uh one is from the sistani school we'll call it uh well, you asked me a question. I got it. I'll give you the answer. Uh this Sustani school of thought. Sistani is, uh, is a Shia cleric. Uh, one of the, one of the, uh, dominant, uh, influential Shia clerics in, in Iraq, uh, in, in Islam in in the Shia faith. Uh, he operates from a uh, Marja or school of out of, um, Najaf, uh, Southern Iraq. It's uh, a place where a lot of, um, shia clerics go to study it's a it's a it's a well-known marja um and he is greatly influential in the shia world but especially in iraq and when isis thrust itself upon uh, iraq in 2014 2015 sistani encouraged a mobilization into what they ended up calling the popular militia um pmf and um and you had a lot of uh, iraqi shia organized into these units but these units were loyal to sistani and were founded in the notion of jihad against ISIS. Um, at the same time, you have uh, a name, a blast from the past, um, Qasem Soleimani, uh, who was the head of uh, the the Kuds force, a uh, noted, um, some people would say, notorious um, Ira- Iranian. Um, military commander, uh, look, you know, whatever you think of him, take his biography, remove the name, his name and remove Iranian and just insert British and American. He's a legend. What he did is legendary. He, uh, was one of the great, uh, greatest all time special operators, unconventional warfare operators in the history of modern warfare. It just so happened that he put his talents against the United States and incurred our wrath. So president Trump assassinated him, a couple years ago. But uh, before he was killed, he actually fought side by side with the United States. There's a famous photograph that shows uh, uh, American troops moving north out of uh, Baghdad towards um, Mosul, engaging the uh, ISIS uh, in the vicinity of, um, I think, Balad. Um, But that could be wrong. But again, memories sometimes fade. Uh, But there's a photo of uh, Qasem Soleimani walking on the side of the road with the Iranian Quds Force and uh, the pro-Iranian Shia militias as they go right by the Americans. Why? Because we were coordinating. We pretended not to. We used cutouts because we weren't allowed to uh, talk to them directly. But, um, you know, the big influence in that area, it's under it's a story not told here in the United States, because we'd like to believe that a bunch of alpha male SEAL team operators. There's the photo. You guys are awesome. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> uh, there is. Awesome Soleimani. Uh, and, and you look at him; he looks like a grandpa, but he's he's one of the most you know he is one of the greatest military minds of modern history. You don't have to agree with what he did or why he did it, but you have to recognize the skill set. It was there, um, and his it was his troops that actually led the fight, uh, that did most of the fighting. Uh, you know, our 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 guys brought in airplanes and you know bombs and and things like that. We also had snipers who shot children, and you know kind of garbage but um you know his is his, his forces the the pro-iranian militias that were there were there now there, there's been a struggle since since isis has been pushed out uh there's been a power struggle taking place i don't know if people have been watching what goes on in baghdad recently but you've had you know you've had some bum rushes of the green zone by uh by shia militias rushing in there uh disagreeing with the policies of, uh, of the Iraqi government especially vis-a-vis the continued us presence so there's this point of tension that that exists and periodically these militias fire upon American um American bases we we have a number of American bases there more than is publicly admitted and um, and periodically they fire on them and periodically we respond with airstrikes or we carry out uh special operations missions etc but um you know there's always been this tension, but what's happening now is that they are they're they are going beyond simple harassment, and they're talking about eliminating the American presence. and this is uh, this is a problem because we, I think sometimes we get lulled into a false sense of complacency. Um, we don't have that many troops in the region. This ain't the day and age where we had 150,000 boys. Uh, you know, deployed over there with you know the ability to surge tens of thousands more that we were organized and structured to wage ground combat. That when we got engaged in a firefight, we had forces dedicated to reinforcing, we had air power on station, we were ready to rock and roll. That ain't the case today. We have a residual force that's there primarily. Um, I mean, at least the official reason is to uh to hunt down ISIS, and every once in a while, I mean, they do it, every once in a while, you see them go after a high value target. Uh, every once in a while, the high value target shoots back. There's been uh, instances of uh, special operators being killed and wounded uh, rec- you know, in recent times. It, it's an ongoing fight. It's not like we're just sleeping. But we also have a presence in Syria, several thousand strong, very controversial presence because we were not invited into Syria by the Syrian government. We took it upon ourselves to move in there, again, ostensibly to chase down ISIS. But the real reason was to empower uh, what we call the Syrian Democratic Forces uh, sort of an, we we want to turn them into an anti-Assad element. Bashar Assad being the president of Syria. We've been actively engaged in policies to remove him from power since 2011. Um, Now, the SDF is another name for the um, YPG. It's a Kurdish people's militia, I think it is, uh, which is uh, sort of a Syrian name for the PKK. Uh, There we go, the People's Worker Party of Turkey. These are Kurdish, Kurdish uh, groups that want independence from turkey they want an independent they want a free and independent kurdistan look as an american i like independence i like free independent i think people you know have a right to to determine their own destiny uh but the kurds are in trouble because they've been split up amongst a number of nations that don't want an independent kurdistan and uh the pkk is recognized in turkey as a terrorist group turkey's been fighting um a a war on terrorism that's you know it alternated between high intensity, low intensity for decades now. Um, and they view them as terrorists and the European union and the United States have concurred that the PKK is a terrorist organization. And that means that the YPG an offshoot of the PKK, I'm getting alphabetic here, but they're terrorists too. And we acknowledge that. So what did we do? We went in there and we had to start working with the YPG to take out ISIS. Lots of alphabets going around here. Um, and we ran into legal problems. So, we Just went up to them and said, Hey guys, can you change your name? And they went, What do you want to call us? And what about the Syrian Democratic Forces? We got that nice big D word in <laughs> the <there> Democratic, <laughs> and uh, and suddenly everything's good. And uh, they did, and suddenly we're there hooking and jabbing with terrorists as our allies mm-hmm. against ISIS. But what we're really trying to do is prop them up. You know, our forces are occupying certain key terrain features in Syria, inclusive of the old Conoco Oil Company oil fields near uh. Uh, names again dar azur but god you guys are awesome Thank you. <laughs> okay so there it is <laughs> the, the the city that begins with a d yep. um <laughs> not damascus <laughs> and, uh, the other one <laughs> the other one the one that's you know headed in the towards the east um anyways we're there uh we're stealing the oil but it's not for us people and, and i i'm not saying that facetiously uh we're we're actually stealing the oil getting it to the market generating income that's used to pay for the um, Syrian Democratic forces, pay for this Kurdish, um, and and we like to pretend, we we pretend that it's more diverse. We say, oh, they're making joint cause with the local Arabs. Well, the local Arabs happen to be the the, the foundational touch point of ISIS. Where do you think ISIS comes from, people? I mean, it's not like it's the gremlins where you go out there and you throw water on cute little fuzzy things and they turn into uh, terrorists. No, ISIS comes from the local tribes. The local tribes uh, become alienated from the governments that are supposed to be, uh, you know, providing them with good governance. And they end up supporting the group that says we can handle you. And they convert to that ideology. It doesn't take much. First of all, half the ISIS fighters that we killed in Mosul, the battle for Mosul, were illiterate, Um, which means when we talk about, you know, Islamic fanaticism, they didn't know Islam. They weren't very good at it. Um, they they barely couldn't read so they could quote some things and they they just sort of were told I'm gonna martyr myself in the cause of Islam and go to heaven and 72 virgins are gonna converge upon me and life is gonna be good but they couldn't quote the Quran they didn't know anything about Islam so it's hard to call this an Islamic thing it's a social thing it's a social thing that manifests itself violently and a lot of the ISIS support come came out of Syrian tribes in in the in that in, in in that area of Syria, um, and now we're trying to win them over. We superimpose on top of them an American Kurdish entity, and it just keeps ISIS going. It really does. And some people think that that's the plan because every once in a while, ISIS surges down the Palmyra, kills a couple Russians, kills a couple uh, Syrian Army guys, It just creates uh, you know a general sense of unrest that delegitimizes the Syrian government in the eyes of these tribes and so it's it's very confusing but that's why u.s troops are in syria they're supported logistically not out of turkey but out of irbu in um in in in, in northern iraq in kurdistan so that's their big american base there a lot of special operators all the delta guys that fly around come out of that base and all the task force 160 helicopters whenever you see guys come in and send dogs down a tunnel to blow up a uh isis guy they're coming out of uh they're coming out of Erbil. They're coming out of uh, of, of, of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. But where does their supplies come from? Well, they're driven in from Kuwait. And there's this long supply line where these trucks have to go in there. Now, they're primarily contractor vehicles. Now, the day of having, you know, uh, American forces on the road protecting the convoys is long past. But we may have to get that to that point again because this is why I brought up this whole thing is our position in Iraq and in Syria is very tenuous very tenuous. We have this single supply line that runs from Kuwait up up the length of Iraq to Erbil and then across the border into Syria. These militias, they can throw drones at Camp Victory in Baghdad. They can throw drones at different places. They can hit us with mortars. That's not the problem. The problem comes when they just said, ain't nothing going to come to you. We're cutting off the supply line. We don't have the troops anymore. We got, I think, the brigade left in Kuwait we got a brigade in Kuwait. I could be wrong on that, but I think we have a brigade. That's not enough, guys. You can't take a brigade and suddenly say, we're going to control a, you know, thousand mile line of communication stretching from Kuwait up to, uh, to, if they cut the line of communication, which they're very capable of doing, we will have to withdraw. We will have to withdraw because we don't have the force structure in place in the Middle East any longer to keep that thing open. We would have to surge, you know, Literally a hundred thousand troops in there to secure that line of communication. Uh, we just put a hundred thousand guys in Europe, and uh, we don't have any more to give them because we got this problem set brewing in the Pacific, where the planners are saying, "Don't forget about us. We need boys over here too." Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so the Pentagon's sitting there looking at you know this thing. That's why I, I forget who just came out. Um, uh, some think tank. I'd like to say Rand, but I couldn't or they came out and they said we what we need to we need to expand our conventional mm-hmm. military forces. Well that's curious. I always wonder how they're going to do that because again, you just don't throw seeds in the ground throw water on it and soldiers pop up. They have to be recruited from a population that right now isn't too thrilled about joining the army. The army 6,000 men short of a 60,000 recruiting goal. They can't get enough to keep the current force structure in place, which means they've had to shrink the army By 6,000 seats, reduce some units, eliminate some units, consolidate some units. And now they're saying, we want to build, I forget what the number was. Was it 150,000, 200,000 more uh, troops that they're going to need? Can't do it. Can't do it. So the point I'm trying to get at is we're in a very precarious situation in Iraq. And these militias, which do um, are, are responsive. The thing about the militias is they're responsive to two different entities. You have one militia group that will be responsive to Sistani. Uh, another militia group that will be responsive to Iran, and the reason why I bring that up is there's different motivations uh, governing them. For instance, Iran may not be interested in a larger war with the United States right now, uh, in, in, in 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 you know in in Syria and in, in Lebanon, and because Iran, believe it or not, they're not out to conquer the world. No. The Iranians are in favor of doing good things for the Iranians. Mm-hmm. They've been suffering under sanctions for such a long time. They finally, the Chinese came in, brokered a peace arrangement with the Saudis where, you know, things are doing good. They've sort of de-escalated that aspect of it. They joined BRICS. They've joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They're starting to send these, you know, these delegations out to attend these conferences all over Central Asia, Russia, China. It's looking good economically where the Iranian government can now deliver on the promise they've made to the Iranian people that life will be better. Life will be better. The last thing they need a is a major shooting war with the United States. So Iran's like, we don't necessarily want to hype this thing up. Meanwhile, in Baghdad, the streets are full of mm-hmm. millions of people saying, we've had it. Yep. We're, we're, we're marching. And Sistani, because even though you, you may be a man of God, but you're a man of God who lives in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And you have to sort of put your finger to the wind and say, things are going. So Sistani now it ha- is, is controlling these people. It's a situation that's rapidly running out of control. Emotions can take over. Uh, these militias can just say, we're going to act, and do things. That doesn't mean that Iran's ba- backing it or the Sistani's backing it. It just means that it's a very dangerous situation right now. Um, I don't think people understand the extent to which Palestine resonates in that region. I can say this. Uh, I went to, um, in September 2002, I went to Iraq and I spoke before the parliament. I'm sort of sort of a cool thing in my resume. I'm the only foreign <laughs> to the Iraqi parliament. And uh, I did it live on TV with a speech that no one got to see before I said it. That was one of my uh, conditions. But um, I did talk to some because, you know, I'm not stupid. I'm, not, I'm a Marine, a little strong headed sometimes, but I'm not stupid. And I sat down and I said, OK, I'm going to be in Baghdad in the parliament trying to get the attention of the Iraqi government so they will let weapons inspectors back in. That was the whole purpose of the trip, but I can't ignore Israel. And so I did put a, cause in, in the Saddam Hussein's government that time had taken a very hard line on uh, on Palestine, on Israel, et cetera. And the reason I'm bringing this up to point out that, you know, this, this, uh, the, the, the linkage between um, the Arab street in Iraq and Palestine, isn't something that came with the Shia taking over. Under Saddam, it was real linkage, too. And I ended up having to throw in a a line in my speech, and I think it was um, that Iraq can't be more Palestinian than the Palestinians, meaning that when it comes to the issue of Palestinian-Israeli relations, um, Iraq can't get ahead of the Palestinians. And at that time, the Palestinians were talking about, you know, a two-state solution, moving forward with peace, et cetera, and that Iraq would need to accept that. And that's how I got through the Israeli issue, because that was a big issue for the for the Iraqis. I couldn't go in there and talk about, you know, holding hands and sing Kumbaya and everything's going to be great. You had to address the elephant in the room, with Israel. So I took that route. But my, my point in bringing it up isn't to show that I'm some sort of genius diplomat, because I'm not. Uh, it was to point out that the uh, the issue of Palestine has been resonating in the Iraqi Arab street uh, for for decades now it's not something that just was made up it it's deep in the heart of these people who are deep people may not understand that iraq actually sent forces to to fight iraq's one of the few nations that's actually bombed israeli soil successfully 67 mm-hmm. uh, war i believe they sent some bombers in there that that actually made contact with israeli soil 73 war iraq sent a division uh, mm-hmm. that ended up fighting an engagement uh, against syrian commandos um you know i, I mean i'm sorry israeli commandos. Mm-hmm and uh, along the, uh, I think the Iraqi Jordanian border or, or something like that. But, um, you know, and then of course, Iraq has been fire- fired, has the history of firing uh, Scud missiles into, into Israel during the, uh, the Gulf War. So it's, again, Iraq, Israel, deep seated um, emotions that are now manifested themselves uh, in a way that's not good for Israel and not good for peace.
2: Yes, so there that begs the question, I think, before we move on to other subjects in the region, which is that you say that the U.S. would need to surge troops in order to secure lines of communication to, well, both its bases in Iraq and also its bases in Syria. But then, asking this rhetorically here, of course… But then wouldn't the Iraqi army that we've trained and equipped and spent so much time on just come to our defense and secure those lines of communications for us and ensure that we don't have any trouble? (laughs) Well,
1: the Iraqi army has its hands full right now um, in Western Iraq, trying to fight ISIS. Uh, The Iraqi army has its hands full in Kurdistan. Mm -hmm. You know where the Iraqi army doesn't have a great, um, presence in southern iraq why because that's shia country that's where the militias rule najaf you really you really think the iraqi army is gonna go into najaf that would first of all the the, the iraqi soldiers who are shia will say not nah, we're just going to convert overnight into a into the militia we're going to rename ourselves the other thing is the Iraqi, um, you know the army that we spent a lot of time training disappeared by and large in 2014 if you recall the uh what happened around Mosul, where literally the Iraqi army just disappeared, gone. poof? That's why the militias had to come in because there was nothing left. They just, boom, ISIS for a while had a whole bunch of M1 tanks. (laughs) They had M777 howitzers. Why? Because the Iraqi army just went, this was done, you mama, we're out of here. And they ran. Uh, The army that's been rebuilt since then is an army that is heavily influenced by Uh, The Shia militias uh, who are, you know, one of the dominant powers in Iraq today. The Iraqi army doesn't want to fight these militias. They're not going to go to war against the Iraqis on behalf of the United States over Israel and Palestine. Are you kidding me? No, the the Iraqi army will play no role whatsoever in any uh, effort to you know, re-secure supply lines. So if we have to go in, this is why I'm telling you, it has to be a lot of troops. It's not going to be going in, uh, falling alongside a well-trained, well-disciplined, pro-Western military that's going to take our orders and do what we want. We're going in on our own in an openly hostile country um, that will probably oppose us every step of the way.
0: I want to ask about Yemen. So the U.S., we know a lot of people in Yemen, Um, we support a community there, but so we get news from the ground in the capital, but, um, recently the United States Navy said the USS Carney, I believe it was, was, um, attacked by missiles and drones out of Yemen. Um, they said they shot everything down. There was nothing, nothing hit. Um, everything was successfully intercepted. I immediately contacted one of our friends in Yemen and asked him what he thought. And he said, nobody is claiming this. The Houthis are not claiming this. Uh, we know that from the last couple of weeks, the Houthis have been making pretty aggressive messaging. Um, so if it was them, I would think they would take credit. Uh, he said Yemeni forces will not have not taken credit, and it's not been um, reported at all on Yemeni news channels. What do you think about this? It kind of came out as like, oh, it's a direct attack from Yemen to the ship. Then it was like, no, they were actually trying to hit Israel, and it went over the Red Sea. Then there was another story that Saudi Arabia shot something down. Like, what is going on with this strange ship attack? And the the my friend from Yemen said, I'm actually terrified now because if Yemen isn't saying anything and the Houthis aren't taking responsibility, maybe they're just making it up to make a reason to attack us.
1: Well, I mean, let, let's not ever discount that last point, um, you know, uh, coming up with a, a justification for military action. Um, let's again you, you guys do know who i am right i'm i'm this, this <laughs> anal retentive former <laughs> intelligence officer yeah. who doesn't know how to answer questions simply i always have to fall back on a foundation of That's okay. knowledge upon which you build to get to the answer otherwise the answer sometimes when i say the answer just outright people go you don't know what you're talking about you're making that stuff up you're an idiot could be true, could be true, could be true. Probably is true, the idiot part, but um I'd like to pretend I'm not. So we'll back up and point out that the uh, conflict in, in, in Yemen, first of all, it's been going on forever. Um, it, the most recent manifestation of it is 2014, I believe, when uh, Saudi intervened um, to oust one, uh, well, one to, to support one Yemeni government Uh, Mm -hmm. The other one had been ousted. It put them into conflict with the Hootie um, and that fight's been going on. We don't need to get into that except to bring up that um, recently there's been an effort to put in a ceasefire Mm -hmm. and the ceasefire has been holding. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the ceasefire is holding is that it's in everybody's interest for it to hold, especially the Hootie. I mean, there's some tough SOBs. (laughs) They haven't been beaten yet, guys. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, Saudi Arabia also has to be worried because uh, um, if you study the history, a lot of what they call Southern Saudi Arabia used to be called Northern Yemen. And uh, the the Houthis are going—that's our land. We may take it back. In fact, they've actually occupied, I believe, a couple hundred meters deep into uh, Saudi Arabia. And if this war goes south, Saudi Arabia could lose significant territory uh, in the south, including some major cities and stuff. So the Saudis you know, recognize that the trajectory of the conflict isn't going the way they wanted it to go. So they are actively involved in, in negotiations. So is the United Arab Emirates, uh, you know, so it's 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 this complicated thing. Um And so you, you have to say, well, wait a minute. So the Houthis have jumped into this thing with two feet. And the reason why the Houthis are prevailing, even though they themselves are sovereign, independent minded people, if you study their religion their faith you know there's a while there, everybody's like they're like the iranians they're shia they're they're not shia they're something different than shia it's sort of a subset of the shia faith uh but and there's again if people have the name of the exact faith please jump in and and help me out there but um because my brain just did a little scott ritter thing but uh it's but the uh, but the Iranians actually had to pass a, a fatwa that basically stopped calling the Houthi heretics because mm-hmm. uh, the Shia faith, it's just like with the Alawites in Syria. Um, so, you know, there's an offset of the Shia faith, but they're not Shia. And the, the puritanical people in the Shia faith who tend to be the source of the mullahs who run the theocracy in Iran. They're like heretics, heretics, heretics. But we have to fight next to them. <laughs> we bless them and make them okay. Okay, and it's the same thing with the hoodie, You know, heretics, 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 but we'd have to fight next to them. Bless them and make them okay. So the Houthis are are there, but while they're not, you know, directly in the chain of command of Iran, meaning they, they can make their own— the big decisions that are made, for instance, the attack on uh, the Aramco oil field back in 2019, mm-hmm. I think September 2019, and uh, in, in, in repeated attacks since then, they, they can't happen without Iranian intelligence and Iranian concurrence, because it's a major deal. This isn't about tactical decisions on the ground where you say, we're going to go after this city, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Zaidi's. There you go, Sakapapa. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I knew there were some people out there who had access to Google but, or are smarter than me or both. Um, but the, the, So my, my point is that um, the, there is a level of coordination when you are going to take Iranian capabilities and the Iranian capabilities come hand in glove with not just the technical side of it, how to assemble kits into a functioning weapon system, but also they're tied to a larger policy of how they will be employed, especially if they will be employed outside of uh, Saudi Arabia or outside of, of Yemen, because now there are geopolitical consequences that are larger than the Houthi issue. So the Iranians have made it clear that the, the Houthi cannot fire these weapons outside of their territory without clearing it with the big boys first. Um, and, the, and so that's my long way of saying now did the Houthi fire these weapons against Israel? And the answer is no. Not just no, but hell no. Because <laughs> Iran, I believe that Iran right now is is bending over backwards not to go to war with Israel. They don't want this war. They didn't ask for it. Well, Iran. I mean, I love it. <laughs> the idiots in Washington D.C. The Iranians knew all about this. They greenlighted this thing. They've been there for you. Do you have any evidence? No, but you know, you know that they. No, you don't. If you know anything about the Iranians, you're actually. You know that they're going, what the hell just happened? Literally. <laughs> just in a little emergency. What what just happened? What the hell is Hamas doing? Holy crap. Nasrallah do you see what's going on there? Yeah, boss, I don't know what's going on. You didn't you didn't make this happen? I didn't know anything about it. Jesus Christ, this could be calm down, everybody. Take a deep breath let's not let this thing get out of control. Then Israel blows the living crap out of Gaza. Holy crap, it's getting out of control. You know, we have to do something, but they don't want to go to war. They don't want I'm just telling you guys right now, straight up. Um and I know this for a fact. I can't tell you how I know it, but you got to trust me on this one. They don't want to go to war with Israel at the highest level. They don't want to go to war with Israel. It doesn't mean they're afraid of Israel, but it's not in their strategic interest at this point in time. Everything is coming up roses for Iran. Everything is coming up roses. Why throw it away over this? Because... All the scenarios, Israel's weak. Iran could swamp them now. If Hezbollah only fires their rockets in, Israel could go out. Israel's got nuclear weapons, guy, and the nuclear weapons are tied to a policy called the Samson option, which means we bring the whole damn building on us. Read the Bible. Okay. Don't um, get a haircut. Uh, you know, <laughs> but the point is, you know, no, this is stupid. Um, so now you said, well, what is it, Scott? I'll give you a hint what it is. In the Gulf War, um i was heavily involved in what they call the the counter scud campaign but you know the counter scud campaign only begins once the scuds begin firing up until then time it's a theoretical campaign because nothing's happened uh and so in the early moments of the war in dahran saudi arabia a uh patriot battery pops off a couple patriots and the headlines read patriot missiles shoot down incoming Iraqi scuds. And they ran with that story. Everybody, and guys got medals for that. They gave out Bronze Star medals to guys who shot down a scud that didn't exist. Uh, Because all of us who are in the counter scud campaign are going, hey, uh, DSP satellites, you know, those infrared satellites we put over the world to detect Russian missile launches, but then we reprogrammed them to get them over the Middle East so they could attack Iraqi it, it cost a lot of money. <laughs> hey, that $10 billion experiment you got overhead, did it detect anything? No, we didn't see anything. Uh, we call up the, uh, the the radar, this big giant radar we have in Perinsalic, like, Turkey, and they're tied into the thing too. <coughs> Y'all see anything? We didn't see anything. Holy crap. I mean, nothing's coming in. It didn't happen it wasn't a launch it was a ghost in the system um they they had ginned up the system remember it hadn't been in combat before so they're putting it up there and what happened i think i can say this anyways if they if, they, if you hear a kicking at the door they come in and they drag me away Little they, they know where from. i lived <laughs> but um the point is AWACS is up and running and AWACS has thrown out a lot of signals and we had a lot of other electronic warfare airplanes out there and they were putting out so much clutter in the bandwidth that the patriot radar started seeing ghosts and that's what happened the the the, the, the electronic signals came in the radar went ning, 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 missile attack and because they had it on automatic mode that's another whole story about the patriot system and why it sucks but it went fire 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 pop, pop pop, pop. Fire it off, and because you fired a patriot, you better say there's something to hit. So did anything land? No, we shot it down. (laughs) We shot it down. We're one for one, baby. We're one for one. USA, USA, USA. Nothing existed. Now, this happened several times. We had to fix the glitch. What we had to do is um is learn how to filter out all these signals, and then we had to put a man in the middle, and we had to relearn. Uh, how to manually operate the Patriots so that we wouldn't the other thing that was happening and anybody who's been watching the war in Ukraine, you've seen this, you know, where they had the Patriot system it goes pop, 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 and they blow out the whole load shooting yeah. at whatever. Um well that's what we were doing too. The Iraqis would fire a couple scuds and it's pop pop. And then, you know, and everybody's sort of like that's a really cool fireworks show, except for the logisticians who are going, we're running yeah. out of missiles <laughs> yes. and they got more coming we need to take control of this so they had to put the man in the middle come in and and fire you know accordingly now we come to this current situation people may have seen that the you know everybody's talking about iron dome iron dome this iron dome that etc there's another system in place called uh David sling. Guys, help me out here.
0: Yes, there's David Sling and also Iron Beam. Yep.
1: Yep. So David Sling. David Sling is the one that's supposed to shoot down anything other than a Hamas bottle rocket. So if you got a real missile, David Sling comes in. And over the last couple of days, um, David Sling's firing. And when I first heard, I went, "Oh man, that means Hezbollah got involved because they're firing a real missile." Or the Iranians said, "Hell, hit them." Um, then you read and you go, "Nah, it's just ghost in the machine." Why? hadn't been used in combat before and you have this system out there and you you're now in a system in an intelligence environment where you're literally you have everything electronic every radar in the world turned on actively scanning um and the system they didn't test it for that and the system starts seeing ghosts so they start firing missiles so now we come to the uss carney when was the last time the USS Carney repelled a massive missile attack? And the answer is never, never in its life. Never. And so now you have the USS Carney sailing off into a war zone where mm-hmm. their mission is going to be to repel a massive missile attack. And you have the boys in blue down there doing their thing, looking at the screen. And, mm-hmm. they're, and you got, every, they're just looking and you got every signal. You're moving into a war zone, everything. I guarantee you they shot down ghosts. They mm-hmm. shot down nothing. Basically, the system went beep, 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 and they went, oh, God, fire, 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 They didn't see a damn thing. They, there's no debris. There's no missile. No one visually saw anything. Mm-hmm. They just fired a whole bunch of stuff off and called it a kill. That's mm-hmm. what I believe. To now, there could be a sailor out there right now listening to this going, Ritter, you're wrong. <laughs> I, could be. I could be. If you're going to sit there and tell me that you were on duty and you physically saw Something come by that was actively engaged by the carny, and it blew up in front of you. Man, I yield the floor to you. Sarah asked me a question, or Sarah didn't, or somebody asked me the question. It
0: was me. (laughs)
1: They're asking a question about what I thought, and with the information I have, based upon prior experience, I'm thinking it was a ghost. If someone can say otherwise, then I yield to them because I don't have that fact set, so I can't, you know, I can't plug that in. I'm just saying that there is a history of these, you know, these, these very modern technologically advanced air defense systems seeing ghosts.
0: Well, now we're going to ask you your opinion on, on Syria. So. (laughs) Yes, we will, because that's Thank actually you. something that a lot of people, especially on our channel, want to know about. Because just this morning, we we saw and we posted reports about how two major um, airports in Syria were hit by uh, Israel. And so we wanted to ask you, what. What is your opinion on what is going on? And obviously, because I am Russian, so I always have to ask the Russian question: Does this change anything for Russia? These attacks?
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's 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 a good it's a good question. Look, Israel's been bombing Syria for some time now, um, and Russia has been sitting on the sidelines watching it for some time now. Russia went into Syria in two thousand fifteen. To save the day for Bashar al-Assad, Russian intervention, I think history will show that because of the Russian intervention, um, Syria survived and together with Iran and Hezbollah, the Russian forces were able to achieve, help the Syrian army achieve a strategic victory uh, that's still not a final victory, but a strategic victory. Uh, Iran played a critical role in that, so did Hezbollah, um, which doesn't make Syria or Israel very happy. Um, now, if it had just been left to doing some fighting, you know, getting guys on the ground, getting ammunition, all up fighting, um, I think Syria would have taken, or Israel would have taken a more, um, a, a lower profile approach. But even prior to this conflict, and again, here we go again, Ritter, 2006, Israel and Syria fight a major 33 day war, um, August, uh, where. <laughs> A lot of the Israeli rhetoric that uh, we hear regarding Hamas was said at the same time. This is it. We're going in. We're going to destroy Hezbollah. We're taking them down. It's all over. We're going to eliminate them. And 33 days later, the Israelis retreated because Hezbollah fought them to a standstill. Um, You know, it's one of the few times in history that uh, an Arab military organization has defeated the Israelis. I think the other one was in 2000 after a five-year campaign. Who was that? Again? Hezbollah. They beat the Israelis too. Uh, but you know, so Hezbollah was pretty good at beating the Israelis. They beat, they beat them, them but, but the, uh, you know, what you have to look at in, in a scenario like this is, or a situation like this is what were the lessons learned? And one of the things that, uh, Hezbollah learned was that Israel strikes back disproportionately. In fact, out of the 2006 campaign, uh, came something called the Dahiyah, um, uh, principle or mow the grass. That's the Israeli policy of um, of collective punishment. Basically, uh, if, if you're going to engage, they're going to punish the civilian population to such an extent that the civilian population will cease to support the entity that has irritated Israel. And in 2006, Israel blew the living hell out of West Beirut, excuse my language, I mean, they, they flattened it. Um, and they flattened a lot of villages in uh, southern Lebanon, killed a lot of innocent people. And they didn't kill that many Hezbollah, just to be frank. I mean, you know, the Israeli casual figures are here, but Hezbollah has since then come out. And what I have found out about Hezbollah is um, they tend to tell the truth after the fact. I mean, they, you know, they don't because they're honest. You know, they're very honest with their own people because they are of the people. Um, so Hezbollah is very honest with the Shia population. If they sent boys to fight, the boys die. But Hezbollah says only one brigade of uh, Hezbollah force, around 3,000 fighters, was actively engaged with the Israelis. And those those 3,000 fighters who took the brunt of the casualties, that the rest of the Hezbollah's, Hezbollah's forces never even were engaged. They didn't mobilize. They didn't. So Hezbollah actually beat Israel with one hand tied behind their back. Um, but Hezbollah realized that Israel will come in and bomb the civilian population and that because that did after the fact. I mean, the fact that Hezbollah fought the Israelis to a standstill is what saved Hezbollah because there was a lot of animosity inside Lebanon toward Hezbollah after that campaign because of the damage that had been done. And there's a lot of Lebanese going, hey, you guys are pretty good at fighting them Israelis, but uh, we don't know if you like you anymore because our neighborhood's gone. Um, and we're not happy about that. And Hezbollah got into the business of governing. They became heavily engaged. They exploited the, the the reputation-building aspects of fighting the Israelis to a standstill to become actively and positively engaged in the governance of Lebanon. They became, uh, I think, at one point in time, their the Hezbollah party won the most votes of any party. I, I'm again, I'm not a vote counter, but you know they didn't have enough for the majority in the uh, parliament because they couldn't get a governing majority. But they They became a player. They had to have cabinet members. They got to, they they got to play in the game of making Lebanon better, and that's a big deal for Nasrallah and Hezbollah. They they very much care about their communities, community based, etc. So to keep the Israelis from attacking like that, in case there was a blow up, because Hezbollah still hadn't forgotten its primary mission, which is to kick Israel out of all Lebanese territory, and Israel currently occupying uh, places they call the Shaba Farms. Um, up in the uh, adjacent to Golan, the key key, the of farms (laughs) is um, that they the two villages that are there are the sources uh, for the spring water that feeds the River Jordan. And um, Israel doesn't want to give Lebanon control of that. So Israel is occupying that. And Hezbollah is saying, that's our land. So they're in an active state of war with Israel over that land. And periodically, patrols run into patrols, missiles get fired. And what Hezbollah did is they said, We have to make sure that that never blows up into Israel blowing the hell out of Western West Beirut again. So what we need to do is build upon the missiles that we had, rockets we had sent into Israel uh, and terrorized the Israelis. And when I mean terrorized, I don't mean as terrorism. I mean as the Israelis were scared to death of these rockets. And so Hezbollah said we need to massively increase the number of rockets and the capabilities. And this is what we come in. It becomes a project called the Precision Guided Project. And this is a project run by Iran to supply Hezbollah with longer range missiles, precision guided missiles, so that when Hezbollah, for instance, ran a drone over Israel, yes, they have many times, and it returned with imagery, uh, and they published the photograph that says, this is the prime minister of Israel's residence. And if you look at that window right there, this rocket will go through that window and kill him because that's the precision we now have. And it's not onesies or twosies. We got tens of thousands of them. Israel has made it their objective to prevent that from happening. Now we come to why Israel's bombing um, uh, Syria. They're bombing it to disrupt this this supply chain uh, to come in. And the Russians came in, because you asked the question about the Russians. When the Russians came in, they were coming in there for Bashar al-Assad. What the Russians said is, we are not here to empower Iran to position itself against Israel because Russia and Israel have very long, for the most part, good relations. There's a good relationship. Russia listens to Israel, Israel listens to Russia, uh, and they tend to try and avoid confrontation because a lot of the Jews that recently immigrated to Israel come from Russia. Um, And so there's this, there's this, there's this, symbiotic relationship there that russia is not going to throw away russia doesn't want to go to war against israel and israel doesn't want to go to war against russia so what russia said is we will not if you attack the syrian government uh you know with a regime change type assault or if you do anything to attack us all bets are off We're, we're we'll go hot and heavy but we're not here to empower the Iranians and they told the Iranians that we're not going to protect you we're we're not here to protect you. And so what's Israel has been doing is bombing the Iranian supply effort to get stuff into um, into Lebanon. And so now Iran has some new technologies that were not part of the original when you have a project like the precision guided missile project, um, you send a system in uh, it comes in in kits and then, the, the Hezbollah people have to be trained up on how to assemble these kits um, because you don't want, you have to respect Israeli intelligence and Israeli capabilities. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket uh, so that Israel could come in and hit it in a preemptive strike and take out all your assets. So it's a lengthy process to absorb this technology. And it's done in a very secretive way, and a very compartmentalized way. And the reason why I bring that up is it's not a system that's conducive to rapid change. There are a lot of systems right now in Iran that Hezbollah doesn't have. Hezbollah right now is is incorporating systems that are 10 years old. They're good systems, but they're not the best. The Iranians have actually jumped forward by an order of magnitude in terms of the quality of, of their systems, which is bad news for American bases in the region, bad news for American shipping. But because they haven't made it to Israel yet, it's good news for the Israelis. So... What Israel is trying to do is, as tensions are ratcheted up, I'm sure they detected some intelligence that was Hezbollah saying, we we need you to fast forward some of these uh, these assets, because Hezbollah's policy right now is deterrence. Believe it or not, Hezbollah is in constant communication with the Israelis, constant communication with the Israelis. They have a red line. The Israelis don't pick it up. They're not talking directly, but there's Middlemen, There are a variety of uh, channels where they're having very, very intensive discussions about what's going on um, to try and de-escalate, to keep it from blowing up. And the Hezbollah people are telling the Israelis, what we're doing is deterrence. We don't want to preemptively attack you. It's not our job. But if you bomb Western Beirut again, we will take out Northern Israel. We will take out Tel Aviv. We will take out Haifa. That's what our capabilities are. And the Israelis have been watching this take place. And so they believe they put in a system uh, that's capable of interdicting most, if not all, of the missiles that come in from Hezbollah. Hezbollah is telling Iran, in order to keep deterrence up, because remember, if the Israelis are confident that they can take down the Hezbollah systems, then that means that Israel now believes it could be freed up to carry out its own preemptive act. And why would Israel want to carry out a preemptive strike against Hezbollah? I'll tell you why. Because last year, they ran an exercise called Chariots of Fire. This year, they ran an exercise called Firm Hand. These were exercises designed to stress test the IDF on every potential conflict that could occur at the same time, to see if the IDF had the ability to beat Hamas, beat Hezbollah, control the West Bank, uh, contain Syria and, and Iran at the same time. And the answer both times was not just no, but hell no, can't do it. And that's a can't do it waiting to be attacked. Now, the way you change the calculus is to say, okay, if we can't beat them by, you know, if they once they initiate the attack, we don't have the capacity to repel and and respond. What if we preempt? What if we know we've just deployed 300,000 troops to Gaza and we're getting ready to decisively commit them to a battle that once they're in that battle, we can't unplug them. And if Hezbollah comes across, we're sort of screwed. So what if we preempt? What if we go in first and take out Hezbollah? And Hezbollah is calling up Iran, saying we have to get the deterrence thing up, baby. You need to give us some of these weapons, some of these newer weapons, so we can call the Israelis and say uh, that 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 preemption thing. Don't think about it, because we have new capabilities and we're just going to take you out. You say, well, why would Hezbollah do that? You guys do know that Hezbollah publishes propaganda videos all the time, and the propaganda videos are sort of bragging about what they have. Now, why would they do that? Why would you tell the Israelis what you have? Deterrence. What good is deterrence if the other side doesn't know about it? So Hezbollah is trying to get weapons so they can call the Israelis up and say, Yeah, you guys, we know you're thinking about preemption. Don't, because we got new weapons. And what Israel's doing right now is trying to disrupt that supply chain to keep those weapons from flowing into Hezbollah. So that's why they're blowing up the Aleppo airport and the Damascus airport to prevent the flow of weapons weapons that that would have to come in by aircraft. and that's another reason why they, you continuously see them bombing the Abu Kamal al-Qa'im crossing there uh, between Syria and, uh, and Iraq, because um, the, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Command has built a massive warehouse facility in Abu Kamal where they receive this material mm-hmm. before it's pushed on. And so this is what Israel's up to. They're trying to interdict uh, Iran's ability— And I believe that it's an active, I think it's an active program by Iran right now as we speak to get some of their most modern weapons capabilities into the hands of Hezbollah to increase Hezbollah's overall deterrence capacity.
0: So one of our, and shout out to Jame or J.M. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but I do want to play you something and I want to get your reaction to it. So, Aria, if you could play that video for us, please.
3: that. I understand you're on under the Russian payroll and I understand this is a Russian propaganda, but you have to be very careful because let me tell you, we're going to finish this war. We're going to win because we're stronger. After this. Russia will pay the price. Believe me, Russia will, Russia pay, will pay the, the price. price. Russia is supporting the enemies of Israel. Russia is supporting Nazi people who want to commit genocide on us, and just Russia will pay the price. Russia also. Now, let me listen to me very carefully. We are gonna finish with these Nazis. We're gonna win this war. It's gonna take the time it's gonna take, but we're gonna win this war. Afterwards, we're not forgetting what you are doing. We're not forgetting. We will come. We will make sure that Ukraine wins. We will make sure that you pay the price for what you have done. You, as Russia, and you, and as all the enemies of Israel, and you, as all the people who are now making everything they can to support genocide of the Jews in Israel. We are not forgetting. We are not forgetting. Remember exactly what I'm saying now. You will pay the price.
1: You know, I saw that and um, I'm a fanatic Miami Dolphin fan. I mean, my, my loyalty to the Dolphins goes back to 1968. I was around in 1972 when Miami had their undefeated season, the heyday. Um, I know guys, I was only 12 years old, but Hey, let me live, live the glory. Um, But ever since then, they've disappointed me. So when I saw that video reminded me of a guy who um, does fantasy football and he has all of his picks uh, you know, and and he thinks he's gonna have a great season, and then managers do something, and and he loses. And I can just imagine this: the, the day he loses, he's such a believer. He's on there calling up the the manager. I'm gonna ruin you. I'm gonna take you down. If you don't do the draft picks that I choose, I am gonna take. You. And you're sitting there going, dude, he doesn't care about you. You're irrelevant. <laughs> you, you you mean nothing to him. You're ranting over nothing. Let me just tell you, you know how many russians lost sleep the only reason why a russian would lose sleep over that video is because he laughed you laughed all night he or she <laughs> if you watch that it, you literally can't take it seriously the guy is a living joke um he i believe he's a real estate investor and he does investment management which tells you he's not a warrior so don't worry about it, guys. I mean, maybe he could get your real estate stocks in Tel Aviv to collapse a little bit. That's the only harm he can do against you. And you want to know the influence he has with the Israeli government? None whatsoever. Zero. Yes, he's ahead of something called the Likud liberals. Um, you know, And I'm pretty sure Netanyahu is responsive to liberals. Um, not. So this is literally... It was pure entertainment. Um, I don't think the Russians are losing their sleep. And I'm pretty sure that when this is all said and done, um, no matter how it shakes out, and I don't think it's going to shake out in the decisive Israeli victory that uh, that he's predicting, um, his his opportunity to um, act on his words um, will be as close to zero as, as you can imagine.
0: So I do want to, <laughs> now that we've gotten the comedy out of the way, I do want to talk about the peace talks that fell apart. So I spoke to Ambassador Polianski the other night, and he went into in-depth about the peace talks and just so far our listeners um, in the UN they tried to pass two resolutions Brazil tried to pass one which was shot down because it did not include the it did not include the right to self defense of Israel and Russia's got shut down because it failed to condemn Hamas appropriately both vetoed by the United States and then we find out that aside from that they tried to have a peace talk yesterday and organized a ceasefire in cairo and that was blocked by the european union because that didn't include the phraseology of israel's right to self-defense um what is with this obsession with this right to self-defense and what does that why leaving that out is like a, a red line
1: because if you you don't want, you don't want it to be debated because what is self-defense? I mean, the problem is self-defense is it's an occupier can never claim self-defense against the occupied straight up there. The end of the debate right there. The moment the occupier says I'm defending myself. The occupied attacked me. Nope. You started it by occupying. Now, I used to be, I don't know. I, I just wrote an article that got me in a lot of trouble with a lot of people, but what the hell, sometimes you just got to write what you had to write. Uh, but it basically outlined why, um, I no longer stand with Israel and why I never will stand with Israel again. Um, I used to stand with Israel. I, I'm admitting it. I, uh, I, I bought it in, I bought into it. Um, and there was every reason to buy into it. I, um, you know i worked for the united nations uh, it was the united nations a, a vote of the united nations that created the state of israel that you know that set it down that motion and israel's been treated as a sovereign state a, a united nations member ever since so i'm somebody who has always said israel has a right to exist and i never really dug into it too much i mean i look i'm not stupid i've read the history i i watched exodus Um, you know, (laughs) and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was in Israel from 1994, to 1998, I traveled there all the time. And I worked with at the highest levels of uh, Israeli intelligence. I I worked with the, the, the mensch on the street. Um, I was there when Hamas blew up buses, blew up restaurants, some of them just a couple hundred yards from where I was. Um, they blew up a discotheque right outside the, the hotel. I I mean, I just, I never went in and did the disco thing. Hey. I never did this, go and be, I was too old to even consider it. But you could see the the, the young people lining up to go in there, the long lines of people, the blue dolphin or something like that, it was called, uh, right next to the hotel. Bam, gone. I mean, horrible stuff. So I am not inclined to be supportive of Hamas under any circumstances. I was a big supporter of Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, I was a big believer in uh, the two-state solution. And most of the Israelis that I uh, worked with were also in favor of the two-state solution. Almost every Israeli I worked with was dead set against B- Bibi Netanyahu and the Likud party and their, their radical uh, approaches to life. But, you know, when I left in 1998, we were a couple years after, uh, I think, Yitzhak um, Rabin was assassinated in November 1995. And. Um, uh, Netanyahu was uh, was elected prime minister I think in March of uh, 96 and so by the time I left he had been prime minister for two years and he wasn't doing a good job and everything had changed but I still was working with the same people who still believed in the same thing so I carried that with me when I left Israel this notion that Israel has a right to exist and has a right to defend itself against all enemies foreign and domestic I mean it's you know hey it's an oath I took why can't other people have a similar oath? Um And I also have to, again, I'm just being honest here. Uh, Sometimes it's dangerous to be honest, but I'm going to be honest. Uh, I was never thrilled by the Palestinian position. Um, I was never thrilled. It just wasn't attractive to me. Um, Because, A, I bought into uh, the Israeli narrative about the creation of their country, surrounded by hostile forces, etc., Um, be the, the, the Palestinian liberation organization and its offshoots had done some horrible things against Americans. Um, so I've just, I wasn't inclined to give them the time of day. And here I am moving into the whole Iraq war thing, and I'm jumping two feet into this uh, anti-war community, almost all of whom are these pro-Palestinian activists who are going over there and this, that, and I'm like, guys, lead the Palestinian issue away. I'm focused on stopping the war in Iraq um The more I started to be critical of the Israeli government, it, it, a very easy thing to do because they they got us involved in Iraq. I mean, they're behind this. When I left in 19, well, when I went there in 1991 or 1994 for the first time, um Israel was Israel viewed Iraq and its weapons of mass destruction as the number one threat to their security, which is why they allowed me to come in and talk with them because they had made the decision that assassinating Saddam wasn't an option. They tried that. It didn't work. Um, And that the, the, you know, trying to contain him was just heading down the wrong path. They wanted these weapons gone. And so I had to convince them that my teams and the other teams were serious about this job, that we were going to go in there and do that. But I also had to convince them that in order to help us do this job better to your satisfaction, You have to open up your intelligence archives to us. We have to know what you know so that you can never slide an envelope underneath the door once we say all the weapons are found and go, no, no, no. What about this one, boys? See, we don't want to play that game. If you want the weapons gone, you got to help us make the weapons go. Um, So we need to know everything. So we entered into this extremely close relationship um, that, that empowered us to Get it to the point. And let me show you how serious they took us Uh, in October 1994, when I first went there, um, the Iraqis had made a move down south like they were going to go back into Kuwait. I don't know if people can think back to those times, but, um, you know, the U.S. started redeploying Patriot missiles in Iraq. Now Israel went into a panic. They they started bringing up their Patriots. And if you go back to 1991, the Gulf War, a lot of the Israelis had died tragically were people who put on gas masks wrong or they 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 did their, they, they safe-proofed their rooms wrong. They put gas masks on children and the children suffocated because they didn't do it right because they were panicked about Iraqi chemical weapons coming in. Um, so now the prime minister, Itzhak Rabin is convening a war cabinet and the head of uh, Israeli military intelligence, Uri Sagai, who was the head of it at that time, uh, had to go in there and the decision they had to make that day was do they issue gas masks to the Israeli population do they issue gas masks to the Israeli population and if they did it was going to be a panic I mean Israel would just go into an absolute panic because it was only a couple years removed from 1991 and so he called me in. he said look you're you're with the UN I said yeah he said you did the counter scud thing during the gulf war I said yeah he said so um what do you think does Iraq have scud missiles what he Maybe he knew because he's really intelligent, so they tend to know everything, but I didn't tell him, is that in November of 1993, I had a meeting in the White House with the director of the CIA and uh, his his closest staff, Bruce Rydell, Martin Indick, people like this, about that very question. And I made the case, based upon the work that we had done as inspectors, that there were no more Scud missiles, that the, the Scud missile force was gone. We had accounted for all the missiles, or at least we knew that there weren't any operational missiles. And... Iraq lacked the capacity to fire missiles against anybody. And the CIA director, he didn't, but Indik and uh, Rydell said, uh, hey, thanks for that. But let me let me tell you what's going to happen. We're not going to let you close the book on uh, on Iraq's ballistic missiles. Just a finding we'll never accept. Uh, The the, the CIA account is that there's 12 to 20 uh, Scud missiles and uh, half a dozen launchers. And that will never change no matter what you do no matter what you do as a weapon inspector, that will never change. And that was very disheartening because it sort of meant that it doesn't matter what we do. And I put a lot of effort into making this happen. I mean, we led teams in, we put our lives on the line, we pushed the envelope and we answered the God, I can't swear, the dosh darn question. Oh, Um, I was
0: told to let you know that you, you can swear.
1: I don't want to (laughs) because life will hold me to account. Because once I start wearing, all bets are off. But the reason I bring it up so emotionally is that we we poured our hearts and soul into this investigation. I mean, we took it seriously. That it was the kind of uh, serious that says we were willing to die for the outcome. That we were that much committed to what we were doing. And we got the answer. We got the answer. And the CIA said we're just not going to accept your answer. So now. I have this Israeli guy, and this is a life and death. So for the CIA, it was, it was all politics. It was all about politically sustaining a policy of regime change that was linked to continuing economic sanctions Were linked to Iraqi disarmament. They could never allow Iraq to be found to be disarmed because sanctions would have to be lifted, and that's what they didn't want to happen. So as the silly UN weapons inspectors were disarming Iraq, you couldn't allow that to be told to the world. The Israelis are asking me, and they have not committed to us. They still view us as very skeptical. They're not so sure they want to work with us at this point. He says, do they have missiles? I have to go brief the prime minister. I said, I'll tell you the same thing that I told the director of the CIA. And I went through my math and I, and I explained it to him, calculations. And he, he said, and what did the director say? I said, he didn't, they wouldn't accept my figures. They, uh, they rejected them. He goes, but what do you believe? I said, I'm telling you right now. With as close to one hundred percent certainty as any man can ever give, there are no Iraqi missiles. Israel's not under threat from any Iraqi missiles. And he sat there. and He left, and that's what he briefed the prime minister. And they didn't put gas masks out on the streets. They didn't put gas masks out on the streets. You um, know, so I don't know why I went down that route. It was a pretty cool story, but um, <laughs> the I, I think the the question is. What was the question? Help me out here.
2: Uh, I question, don't
0: know. I don't remember <laughs> anymore. I, I think it was peace talks, wasn't it? Yes, why, it was peace did, talk. why did the peace talks fall apart because of the right to self-defense? And oh,
1: I think- self-defense. Okay, there, there it is. It's all the whole self-defense thing. But oh, now I know why I said it because the Iraqis, or the the Israelis, bought into the UN thing. Within a year, I was going to Jordan with Israeli intelligence to intercept. The most sensitive intelligence you can have, SIGINT, human combined. Uh, where if I if my lips move too fast, people die. Uh, they trusted me with that. I was sent across the border. I met with the king of Jordan and his his people. We got them to raid a warehouse that night based upon the argument I made, and we intercepted the gyros coming from Russia, prevented them from going into um, into Iraq. Big deal. I mean, this is where this is the kind of quality intelligence the Israelis are providing, and so by 1998 uh six seven the iraqi threat had dropped from number one to about number four by 1998 it dropped to number six on their list meaning that the israelis are no longer viewing this as the most existential threat in the world but then Bibi netanyahu came in and he basically found this to be inconvenient you see he needed to use the all Bibi does is scare people all he does is scare people and so he needed to scare people into supporting see if if Israel's Israel saying hey no Iraq's cool man we ain't worried about it America's got a policy problem Bibi needs America to back him up on a whole bunch of other issues so Bibi said make the Iraqis bad again and they brought in a guy named Amos Gilad and he made the Iraqis bad again and um it was the Israeli intelligence when you ask congress you know cuz the CIA never made a compelling case because they're just stupid um but it was behind the scenes. It was APAC and the Israelis coming in saying, no, 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 we know, we know, they got it. And as soon as the Israelis say, we know, Americans go, they're the best intelligence service in the world. They must know. It must be true. We're going to war. Thousands of American lives. The blood is on Bibi Netanyahu's hands. And so the reason why I brought that up is my, my attitude towards Israel started to shift. And I started to realize that these aren't good people. They're not on our side they don't care about me they don't care about you all that talk about how israel and america are tight and friends you know if they were that tight we wouldn't have jonathan pollard stealing the crown jewels of american intelligence giving it to the israelis and then the israelis turn around and give it to the russians to get favors for they gave away literally tens of billions of dollars worth of intelligence when i say tens of billions i'm talking about the systems that were compromised when israel when pollard took the crown jewels gave them to israel and then israel gave it to the soviets that was it um it's gone now we suddenly we went black again and we had to start to recreate things that takes a long time that's because of the israelis our best friends and then i'm just watching them i'm, I'm running around trying to stop a war and everywhere i go in congress there's an APAC group uh, the american israeli public affairs committee bird dogging me so i'd go in Hey Chuck Hagel, how you doing? man? talk, 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 talk. Tell him all about what I know about WMD. He's all that. And as I leave, there's a, there's the group of APAC guys who come in and say, Hey Chuck Hagel, you don't want to be primary next time, do you? Because we'll primary your ass. Uh, we got money. We've been giving you money. We'll take the money away. We'll take it out. APAC, the Israeli government has bought the U.S. Congress. End of story. And that became patently clear to me that the U.S. Congress is singularly responsive to APAC and the Israelis and that irritated me and so i stopped I, I sort of removed the rose lenses from my glasses and i started to look at israel uh again for the first time um in 2009 I, my wife came over with me in two, in 1995 and while we were there again things went boom i mean it was ugly time guys hamas was blowing shit up i mean it was bad um but the israelis would always pick themselves up dust themselves off and get on with the business not of revenge but of trying to make peace. They knew what Hamas was and they knew they needed to make peace. They knew that Hamas was trying to disrupt that peace. And so my wife and I fell in love with Israel. I mean, beautiful people, beautiful place. If you're religious, I'm not, she is. I mean, come on, man. The Via Della Rosa walking down to you know, Jerusalem, looking at the stations of Christ, dipping your feet in the river Jordan where, you know, uh, John baptized Jesus. Um, looking where Jesus was crucified, looking where he gave his, you know, miracle on the mount. Look at all this stuff. That's just the Christian side. Imagine being Muslim and, and have the same experiences or Jewish and having the same experiences. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. How can you not fall in love with it? But, you know, but we went back in 2009, completely different Israel. She and I were just sitting there going, whoa. First of all, there was a damn wall. Separating the israelis from the palestinians when I was there before there wasn't a wall the green line was just the line on the map You could see the palestinian villages uh, villages. You could see the palestinians. It was there uh, You had to be careful when you drove because of the intifada um, But you know you, you could see them um, They existed they were now. There's a wall. It was a ghetto They had literally turned all the West Bank into a ghetto and there was stuff going on behind the walls that was ugly On the Israeli side, these weren't people who were courageous and brave anymore. These were scared people, frightened The visceral fear. You could see from the moment we set foot, every Israeli we talked to, they were just scared, scared of everything, paranoid, scared. And we came out of that. We went, that was not a pleasant experience. And we were sort of asking, like, guys, why are you scared? You build a damn wall this is this is apartheid this is the kind of crap that democracies don't do why are you doing it and that was one of those eye-opening moments and then you know 2014 comes along the the bombing of gaza uh the slaughter uh all my friends who are in the anti-war movement are you know going off and you know getting on those ships that are sailing in and and now i gotta listen to them and they're starting to make sense they're starting to make sense um And then you you study, you realize, you know, the role that Netanyahu played in empowering Hamas. And uh, then the bottom line is I came to the conclusion that while I will never condone, ever condone attacks against civilians, I will never condone the murder of innocent women, children, et cetera. The kibbutzes that surrounded Gaza are not innocent locations. They're militarized communities, Again, I don't know why people can't see this. They interview this one American Israeli girl, and she uh, she just got out of the military, but she talks about I was assigned to the military, sent to the Gaza division. Her barracks was in a kibbutz. She was billeted in a kibbutz. Her duty assignment as the military was in a kibbutz. That's a military object, guys. I hate to tell you that it's a military object, and the kibbutz. They had a defense force. The defense force was armed. Several of the kibbutzes mobilized their defense force and repelled the Hamas attacks. Others didn't. Why? Because they got overrun. Stop viewing the kibbutzes as this sleeping group of innocent civilians sitting there at night and the evil terrorists sneak over. They launched a surprise attack. Yes, I admit they launched a surprise attack and they overran military objectives. And for all those, this is again. I'm going to get in trouble, but I hate to bring up history, guys. Have you ever heard the the city of Cain, Normandy? You know, call yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard call. I'm a marine. I can say it any way I damn well want to. You call it Con, I'll call it Cain. Uh, yes, sir. You're, you're probably right. It's Con.
0: It's but, Con. That's why I didn't know what you are talking about. i'm like I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know I what I'm talking about con. either. I mean, I, I just
1: make this shit up. Uh, but. <laughs> All right, but just study the battle and and, and the fighting that took place there. The British were supposed to seize it on day one. That was their day one objective, Uh, but they couldn't. So they had to go and fight for it. And the Germans ended up putting, I think, three uh, panzer divisions into that city. And it was a a bad battle. By the time the battle for Khan, right, Close enough. Thanks. uh, Ended. Uh, there were tens of thousands of French civilians killed. Sixty thousand French civilians lost their lives in the Normandy campaign. The majority of them lost their lives in Cannes. um That's just the way it is. I mean, we we would take a street that was a fortified position. There's French civilians up in their house. They can't escape. They die. We would go in, throw a hand grenade in, or not. We the Brits and the Canadians were doing this, but our allies would go in, clear a room, boom, open it up. Not family of six. Sorry, so sad. Too bad. Wrong place, wrong time. Keep on going. Because if you pause and cry, bam, 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 you get killed. Hamas is being actively resisted. You know, this isn't a, this didn't happen like nothing. There's active resistance going on. Israeli forces were surging into the area. They were making contact with Hamas in a variety of places. They oftentimes met Hamas in the kibbutzes that they were fighting for. It's an active war zone. And a lot of people, a lot of people died. And a lot of them were innocent civilians caught in a crossfire. You know, you have to be careful about the propaganda that comes out. I'm not saying that Hamas didn't commit any atrocities. I'm not in a position to know, to be honest. And apparently the Israelis are sitting on a lot of GoPro, GoPro, is that it? GoPro cameras. Yeah. Yes.
0: GoPro. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Uh, and, uh, and and that Hamas were taking and you know, and then they turn around, pop, they get hit. The Israelis capture that. They got the imagery. So, you know, the Israelis, I think, have a lot of images of uh, Hamas fighters turning the corner and shooting people. Uh, now, is that a deliberate act of terrorism or did they turn the corner, see something move and fired it because they're assaulting a, a military position from their standpoint? I'm just saying it's a lot more complicated than the simple act of murder that takes place. So it comes back to the occupiers can never claim self-defense against the occupied. And what happened on October 7th was a prison break by the occupied and they committed, you know, say what you want about them. And remember, I'm, come from the school that says Hamas is a terrorist organization that has a history of blowing up buses and restaurants and places uh, close to me killing people that were innocent. That was my experience in the 1990s. Um, So I'm not sitting here singing high praises, but I'm just saying that you got to be objective here. This was a military action that they did. They inflicted a serious military defeat on Israel. Israel, uh, after 2020-2021, had built this giant fence surrounding Gaza. Fences, they're They like their fences. Maybe they learned it from their history, Uh, Warsaw Ghetto, who the hell knows. But they put up those fences and they put up all the technology and they got all the stuff in there to keep the Palestinians on that side inside. That's the whole idea. One of the ways they do it, they have military bases all around. Then they have kibbutzes. The kibbutzes are military installations. Please understand that. They link together to form they're part of the wall. You have the physical wall. Then behind it, you have a structure of roads, a line of communication with the actual fortified positions behind which are more towns, more military bases, all designed to keep the prisoners in the prison, keep the inmates in the concentration camp. On October 7th, Hamas said, stick it where the sun don't shine. We ain't playing that game anymore. We're coming over the wall and we're kicking your ass. And they did. That's what happened. The occupied got sick and tired of the occupier israel doesn't have any right to self-defense there this now we come back to your peace negotiations this is why um the, the united states won't allow that issue to be open for discussion that they have to say straight up that israel has an inherent right of self-defense we don't want to talk about because they don't want to talk about the land that that kibbutz is on you know i wrote an article and that's an article that i, I mentioned um The reason why I don't stand with Israel anymore. I talked about a uh, eulogy that was read by Moshe Dayan um, about uh, Roy Rutenberg. He was a, a former IDF soldier. He was assigned to a kibbutz. Imagine that in Gaza. And then he helped convert the kibbutz to a civilian place. That means you're bringing in the families. But all it is is a militarized uh, compound now that's going to be incorporated in the economy. That's what kibbutzes are. Um, but he was the security officer there and he got killed by Arabs. His body dragged into Gaza. They recovered his body and they were burying him. But Moshe Dayan's eulogy is telling in a number of ways. One, um, he says, Don't blame them, meaning the Palestinians. He says, There's a reason why there's hatred burning in their eyes because we stole their fathers' lands. This land belonged to their fathers. The land that we're tilling right now belongs to them and they hate us for that. And we can't blame them for that hatred, but then he said, "But blame ourselves, not because we stole the land, but because by stealing the land we created a process that leads inevitably to conflict with those people." That shame on us for not keeping the sword in our hand to strike them down, uh, to forget about you know the 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 ma the cannon. Um, you know the, the the weight of Gaza is on our shoulders, and we forgot about that, and it crushed us. His whole point is. We, we started this. This is the consequence. We have to be realistic about it. Our legacy is perpetual violence with these people who will always hate us, always hate us. What is Moshe Dayan saying in his eulogy? We are an occupying power. We stole the land of the Palestinians and they will forever hate us and view us as an occupying power which is why you can't have a responsible discussion about legitimate self-defense because an occupied an occupier can never claim self-defense against the occupied.
2: So before we move on to our final question, I have another one, which is uh, perhaps to bring it back as a bit of a reminder. You've uh, given us some of that by reminding us of uh, Hamas doing terrorism and killing innocent civilians in the 1990s. But let's go back in a bit of recent history, which is that Syrian civil war. We've talked about it. Uh, my co host Lydia asked about it. Um, when that started, Israel and Hamas were on the same side against Bashar al Assad and on the side of the jihadis. Why? I thought they were mortal enemies. What's up with that?
1: All right. Um, just like, and I'm just going to say this because I get attacked all the time for a wide variety of reasons um some of them are legitimate like i mispronounce names um you know so i accept that um but i have been educated by for instance i am now i I will always try to correct myself when i refer to gaza as an open-air prison because i've been told that prisons are where inmates people who are guilty of crimes are put Gaza is an open air concentration camp because the only thing the Palestinian people are guilty of is being born in the situation that Israel has thrust upon them. So I have to be careful. And then when I say civil war in Syria, um, I used to use that all the time. I still do. That's why I get yelled at all the time. Like People say it's not a civil war. A civil war war. is an internal domestic conflict uh, between, you know, You know, north and south, east and west, haves and have-nots, but it's an internal Syrian dynamic. What happened in Syria is not a civil war. It's a regime change effort being foisted on Syria. Many Syrians ended up getting caught up in it on the anti-Assad front. But it is, you know, a lot of it came from Saudi Arabia the Wahhabists uh, who came in after the drought of 2006, 2007, when villages were emptied because people couldn't sustain themselves. We went to the cities, the Syrian government didn't have a plan to take care of them. There's a lot of animosity building up between the, the agricultural-based uh, uh, you know, peasants, or God, I hate that term because it implies the workers, the farmers, uh, the agricultural experts, um, and the Syrian government. Then the Saudis come in to rebuild that. The first thing they do is plop down a mosque. Second, they do is populate the mosque with the Wahhabist. And so now these guys come back to their villages and they every Friday, they go to prayers and the guys tell them all about the glories of, you know, Islam, Wahhabism and the evil Alawites. And mm, now we got, so there's all this tension building up. The Saudis uh, did that. Um, Muslim Brotherhood exiled after the 1980s, the defeat in Homs from the Syrian government of Papa Assad or Papa Bashar, Bashar Assad, the father. <laughs> um whose name is Hafiz
2: Hafiz al-Assad.
1: There it is. Hafiz. Hafiz, the man. Um he committed uh he, he crushed the Muslim Brotherhood. You can call it an atrocity, whatever you want to call it. Um they started uh, blowing up busloads of uh I think uh uh Syrian um uh, cadets or soldiers uh but he responded by basically evicting them they ran off to a number of locations Turkey was one and um you know leading up to that conflict you have turkey uh Recep Erdogan and and he and uh I'm talking about a bromance I mean he and uh and Bashar were best buddies man they you know turkey's uh, you know we don't have any problems with our neighbors and you know, they start talking they fly together they're talking all the time they're vacationing with one another uh but suddenly this this thing happens in Dara um where Again, it's blown up by the the media. What, what happened there it wasn't as atrocious as everybody makes it out to be. Um, uh, but, you know, it creates demonstrations that are exploited by these teams of um, social media practitioners that have been trained by the United States, by uh, the European uh, communities, all of which are controlled by their MI6. Dutch intelligence, I believe, was heavily involved in this. Um, the State Department, the CIA. Um, you know old uh Liz Cheney's heading up this uh this secret little group in uh in inside uh the Washington DC that's designed to overthrow uh the Sir- the, the Syrians um this is not an innocent little bunch thing where Syrians woke up one day and decided to punch each other in the face this is foisted upon Syria so that's why long way of saying that I don't think it's a civil war I think we have to call it something else just to be accurate because You can't solve a problem unless you define the problem accurately. And if you're defining the problem as a civil war, you're not going to come up with a solution. Having said that, we come back to um, your question, which is.
0: Why Hamas worked with the rebels. Why Hamas, okay.
1: Now we come to Hamas. With Israel. Yeah. Well, Hamas in 47 or 48, um, You know, the way the British mandate was supposed to be divided up is that there would be connectivity between Gaza and the West Bank through the Negev Desert. Um, The Israelis decided that wasn't going to happen. And Gaza becomes its own little pocket of Palestinian uh, existence. West Bank, it's its own little bigger pocket. Um, As Yasser Arafat's Palestinian Liberation Organization um, starts to gain political credibility in the 1980s um the israelis have a conundrum because they don't want to deal with this guy so how do you weaken him in gaza was a uh an offshoot of the muslim brotherhood the muslim brotherhood had a big deal in in um uh, in egypt uh i think zuwahiri number two in al-qaeda was a big muslim brotherhood dude um but he you know the cells operating inside gaza and what the Israelis did is they uh, they helped empower it. They helped encourage it. They said, hey, let's get this Hamas thing going to split the Palestinian cause. Because it wasn't just in Gaza. There's a big Hamas presence on the West Bank as well. And the idea was to divide and conquer, to keep the Palestinian cause split between the more radical Islam of Hamas and you know, the more secular um. You know, Palestinian cause being promoted by uh, Yasser Arafat's Fatah movement. So you have that dynamic taking place. Then in 2005, 2006, um, is the Israelis are talking about getting rid of their settlements because they had occupied Gaza um, and they had these settlements in there. And they said, no, we're going to get rid of our settlements and we're going to make Gaza for Palestinians only. Um, Who's going to govern that? And again, they didn't want the Palestinian Authority to come in. And so they empowered Hamas to become more than just a terrorist organization. They started encouraging Qatar to funnel money in, and they started working with Hamas, uh, indirectly negotiating with them through the Egyptians to legitimize them as a governing body. And Hamas wins an election. (laughs) They won the majority of votes when they had the Palestinian election, I think, in 2006. Um, But they weren't able to get a functioning coalition. They were challenged by... Uh, the Palestinian liberation of uh, the Palestinian authority i guess maybe at that time it was but fatah there was a civil war there was fought 2006 2007 very bloody affair i mean i mean it was bloody thousands of people were killed fighters uh, they slaughtered fatah in the west bank they were throwing them off of buildings chasing them down the street popping them and fatah did the same thing to hamas on the in on the west bank uh, they were slaughtering fatah in gaza all that but gaza emerges as a pure hamas stronghold there were some you know the the palestinian islamic jihad movement was even more radically islamic than that but basically we're talking about not just a palestinian cause but a cause that's rooted in fundamentalist sunni islam now outside of damascus there are large palestinian refugee camps and when we call them refugee camps they've actually morphed into actual cities they're Like a suburb of Damascus, but they're where the Palestinians are. And each one of those had a Hamas, and there's a strong Hamas presence there, a strong Palestinian Islamic Jihad presence there, Sunni presence. And so, as the fight against Bashar al Assad um, started to coagulate, uh, it became a fight that was characterized uh, by many as a Sunni versus Alawite. Um, struggle. Um, that's false because much of the uh, Syrian army was Sunni and Bashar al-Assad had support, but the the, the Saudis, the Qataris, uh, all the foreigners who were coming in to fight uh, were primarily Sunni. And Hamas and uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad aligned themselves with them. And early on, there was fighting from the camps against uh, Assad that uh, that these, these entities took advantage of. I think it was only when uh, ISIS and uh, some of the more extreme Al Qaeda groups started to emerge that Hamas was given the signal cease and desist, stop supporting them back down, et cetera. But that was the that was what was going on in, in Syria was this dynamic where Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, because of their um, their more radical Islamist approach to, to life, uh, were gravitating towards the anti-Assad elements that were also Sunni, radical Islamic.
0: All right, we have to ask, this will be the wrap-up, what, we're already in World War III, we've been in World War III for 18 months, Um, but what what happens now we've waited and our, our I know the people in our chat have asked like 50 times we waited now 2 weeks for a ground ev- invasion we've gotten a multitude of excuses you've said before that israel will get crushed will we ever see a ground invasion will the flattening of gaza with airstrikes continue they've already started uh, striking west bank for what reasons i don't really know um but what happens where do we go is there going to be a ground invasion and will that trigger world like really like a tangible world war three hot war
1: that's a million dollar question um first of all as joe biden himself and i'm loathe to say anything that's positive for biden but he pointed out the the obvious uh and so has Blinken uh, to the israelis don't let your emotions get the better of yourselves on this one um you know what happened on october 7th is is horrible, um, and we understand your emotion. But if you take a look at America's overreaction to 9/11, uh, it it gutted us. It eviscerated us. We uh, we lost two wars. We're in the process of losing a region. Uh, close to nine trillion dollars worth of American treasure has been wasted that uh, could have been allocated elsewhere. Um, you know, it, it was a strategic defeat for the United States. The ultimate ramifications of which have yet to be uh, seen because. It's playing out before us. What's happening right now in Israel is part and parcel of the overall collapse of the United States position uh, in the Middle East uh, because of our overreaction to 9-11. And I think the Americans are trying to tell the Israelis that you could find yourselves strategically defeated here. We're not talking about fighting Hezbollah to a standstill in the hills of southern Lebanon. We're not talking about sending an incursion into Gaza and taking casualties and withdrawing. We're talking about you could lose territory. Hamas can, Hezbollah can come in and take northern Israel. Right now, I believe they can. I believe Hezbollah is positioned to take northern Israel. And they're going to be able to hold it. Why? Because 300,000 Israelis are committed to Gaza right now. The 300,000 they need to repel uh, Hezbollah don't exist anymore. Um, If Syria comes in, you could lose the Golan Heights forever. Once Syria gets it, you're never getting it back. And this wonderful economy you built up if you start bombing iran iran has tens of thousands of long range precision guided missiles conventional warheads they're going to level israel israel's a tiny place there's not a lot of targets in israel <laughs> and they're all clumped in it will be leveled literally leveled what you see in gaza is what tel aviv will become um and this will happen if there's a general war it's just a straight up guarantee Hezbollah will defeat the Israelis on the northern border, and if they push their advantage, they will take northern Israel. They will drive down to the Sea of Galilee, and Syria will take the Golan Heights, and Iran will level Israeli cities and Israeli airfields, and Israel will have suffered a strategic defeat. Now, the Americans, when they do intervene, the intervention isn't going to be to get Israel back to where it was, because that will never happen again. Once Israel is strategically defeated, The outcome is going to be, I believe, a two-state solution, but it ain't going to be the two-state solution Israel wants. And then what's going to happen is a lot of the uh, Israeli Jews that went to Israel under the belief that there's going to be a greater biblical Israel, that Israel is going to be this dominating economy, and they're all going to get rich. All the Brooklyn Jews that went there to steal the homes of the Palestinians, uh, who I despise. I don't know why we let that happen. Um, It disgusts me. Um, But all that's over and israel is going to be a very small place it'll be a jewish homeland but it's not going to be as viable. water rights understand guys that the water is an issue in the holy land right now israel has dominated the uh the 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 the, the region so that it controls the water so that their crops grow the water allocation what the israelis get per capita versus what the palestinians is criminal ladies and gentlemen criminal the palestinians don't get any water in comparison um that will get changed. So all this water wealth that the Israelis continue that, that believe they're operating on, it'll be over in a new two-state solution. The United States is trying to tell Israel that that is the inevitable outcome. If you go in, you're not going to win in Gaza. Now, Scott, you'll say, Scott, why? 300,000 troops. Now, what does Hamas got? 8,000? 10,000? Who knows? 20,000? 30,000? I don't know. Don't know how many they have. It's not as many as 300,000. But what I do know is... You have to respect what Hamas did on October seventh. You can condemn it, and I do condemn aspects of it. Although the occupier can never claim self-defense against the occupied, but um, it was professional. It was well planned out. They had good intelligence. Even the Israelis are going, damn, they had good intelligence. I mean, really good intelligence. Uh, their their plan of action was was decisive, well executed. The tactics were sound. The operations were sound, and they were doing it for a reason. Now. I hope people understand that the reason wasn't to go in and bitch slap Israel and then run back to Gaza and go, nah, 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 nah. No. Hamas is smart. They knew everything about the Israelis. They played the Israelis all along. They got the Israelis to buy into what they call the conception. That is, you know, we were, Hamas, you guys bribed us with 20,000 work permits. We got money coming in from 20,000 dudes out there working for minimum wage and uh, we're, gosh, we want to govern so bad that we're going we're gonna to be bought off by that. And they convinced the Israelis that that was the case. That's why the Israelis fell asleep, because the conception was Hamas will never attack us because they're so focused on this new source of income, sustaining this new wealth, growing, governing. Uh, they'll, never, they'll never break with that. Well, Hamas was playing you from day one because Hamas had been planning this attack well before you gave them the 20,000 work permits. When they accepted 20,000 work permits, it was to lull you to sleep. And it succeeded. Um, Hamas has fallen back on a defensive position in Gaza, which is well prepared. They know—I mean, again, these guys are very smart. They know every Israeli weapon system, and they know that the J-dams can only penetrate to a certain level. They know that the the the, the bunker-busting bombs we gave them can only penetrate to a certain level. And so what they've done is they've gone even deeper. I'm going to throw out some numbers, people. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking that the J dam can can crush can collapse tunnels at a depth of 60 feet or meters. I don't know, one of those two. Um, meters is a lot. That's 180 feet. That's pretty deep. So I'll say 60 feet. Um, that's more realistic. But again, if somebody's out there saying no, nope, Ritter, 60 meters, I'll be I'll okay, believe you. Okay. Probably means you looked it up on Google, and Google never lies. Um, <laughs> never lies. Then. Uh, so the the my understanding is they've gone down to 80, 85. So whatever the unit of measurement is, 60 is what the Dam can collapse. Hezbollah has gone down or Hamas has gone down to 80, 85, uh, which means they're below that. They've planned this. They've also planned what's going to happen when they knew that Israel was going to bomb the civilians. They knew it. Why? Because Israel has that as their policy. They've published that policy. I told you, mowing the grass, Dahua. They've said what they're going to do. So Hezbollah Hamas did this brought it captured a lot of people that was their goal to capture a lot of people and remember scott they took innocent women and children well they they went into a militarized zone assuming that everybody there is a legitimate prisoner of war um you know why they ended up removing the women and children maybe because they i can't it's pure speculation but you guys do know in desert one you know the 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 failed uh iran rescue mission that um, a busload of religious pilgrims drove through the uh the site after we had landed. And um we captured the bus. We had all these pilgrims. We couldn't let them go. Why? I'll just run off and say the Americans are here. This is like day one of a three-day operation. So we put them all on a C-130 and we were gonna fly them the hell out of Iran, take them to an island off the coast of Oman and keep them there until the operation was over. Then we'd We took them hostage. We took them hostage for operational security reasons. So do you think maybe there might have been a situation where Hamas had these women and children and went, if we keep them alive, they're going to get on the phone and make a phone call. We got to get them out with us. Do you think that could have happened? I don't know. I'm just saying that they took a lot of people hostage. They intended to take people hostage. Uh, A large number of them are Israeli soldiers, and they brought them back in. Why? Because they know, historically speaking, that Israel— We'll do whatever it takes to get those hostages back. Live bodies and dead bodies alike. Uh, So that's the first thing is you're going to slow down the Israeli response by bringing in the hostages. You've now dictated the pace of operations. The second thing is they're coming in. That means you want them to come in. You've done something that's deliberately bringing them in. So Hamas has a plan of action. They want Israel to come in since they know what they're doing. They want to inflict extraordinarily heavy casualties on Israel, Hamas is ready for this. You know who's not ready for this? Israel. Israel has not been training for urban warfare, large scale urban warfare. Yeah, I know they run a couple other guys through the Combat City. Had totally different things, guys. The tactics, the operations, every aspect of this fight is unknown to the Israelis. What they did in two thousand fourteen, where they lost, by the way, is not what's happening now. So you, it'd be one thing if you're bringing in active duty guys, guys from the Golani Brigade, the Givati Brigade, the Nahal Brigade, guys who train. You know, these these are conscripts. Remember, the Israeli army is a conscript army. The vast majority of their guys are people who have signed, you know, signed up for two plus uh, two and a half years or something of that nature. They get some decent training, but it's not great training, not great training at all. It takes two and a half years to train a special operator before they even get out there. It takes you know, a year and a half to train a Marine before you send him to a unit where he has to go through a six month pre deployment training. So that's two years before he's even ready for combat. So these Israeli guys and gals that are in these units, they're not that good. They're really not that good. They can do some things, but they're not that good. Then they leave the military and they go into the reserves. And their reserves are even worse than ours because they'll come in and smoke dope. I'm making that up. They smoke cigarettes, drink tea, uh, go out there, shake hands, make TikTok videos. And they train and then they go back and they put their stuff. They they, they spray it down. They have to clean it. Then they go off and be civilians again in their tech jobs and all this kind of stuff. These aren't warriors. This is not a warrior race. These aren't the Sabras of the past. These aren't hardened kibbutzniks. Even the kibbutzniks aren't hardened kibbutzniks anymore. Israel is a soft nation. they got some hard units. Sayat Matkal, Magalan, uh, Shaldag, Yaman. We can name them. And they've got some guys that have signed up for additional contract, guys with five, six years experience. Um, Just put this in perspective. Five, six years experience. So you come in, 18 years old. And now you're sort of the most senior guy in uh, Sayat Matkal. You've been in for six years. You're 24 years old. Do you know what the average age of a Delta Force operative is? Or at least it was. I don't know today because they have diluted it now with the expanse of the global war on terror. 35 to 37. The most experienced dudes in the military. And the reason why they succeed is because they're mature. They can think problems through. And they've been through a lot of training, a lot of operations. You're not going to tell me that some 26-year-old kid is the equivalent of Delta. They're not. Sariat Matkal, the elite unit, has suffered 20% casualties already. 20%. There are other units are suffering casualties as well. And those are the best of the best. The brigades, they've taken hits. They're not ready for this. One of the reasons why there's a pause is they have to train these people up for this fight. But you don't have giant, you, you don't have a Gaza uh, equivalent. So you're going through theoretical training. You're walking them through things. And these are reservists who have become fat and happy. They're not professional soldiers. These are not guys that even want to be there for the most part. And they're realizing they're about to get involved in something they just aren't ready to do. They just aren't ready. The slaughter is going to be unbelievable, which is why I think there's a pause because there's a lot of Israeli generals who are saying, do we really want to commit 300,000 troops to a Gaza battle where there's a good chance we're going to get beat, but there's a better chance that we're going to get sucked in. Now we're committed to a fight and then Hezbollah comes across the border. Hezbollah comes across with 60, 80,000 guys. And then Syria launches a three-division attack on the Golan Heights. We really want to do this game, guys, because we don't have the forces for that. We've been training for a fight against Hezbollah. If in a straight up, if we mobilized, we could probably hold the North, barely. But now we've taken all those resources, and they're down in Gaza, where they're going to lose, at least initially. Understand that. The, the urban warfare school that Israel is going to go through is the school of hard knocks. They're going to send the lead elements in, and they're going to get wiped out. Israel is going to collect that data, pull back, re-equip, re Look at what Russia, happened to Russia in, uh, in Ukraine the battalion tactical group it's the genius thing that's how we fight btgs count your btgs you know and they came in and the btg didn't do very damn well um and so what have the russians done they've reconfigured reformed based upon the experiences and the russian army that's out there today is 10 times better because they're fighting they're 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 operationally prepared to do this fight but it took them over 600 days to get to where they are now israel's walking into this battle not having a clue of what they're going to do. It's all theoretical. And Hamas has been planning this for over two years. It will be a bloodbath. That's why there's a delay. The other big delay is nobody wants this fight with Iran. Iran doesn't want the fight. And if you don't think Iran's making phone calls right now to Europe, to the United States saying, guys, please, we don't want this, but don't force our hands. If they go into Gaza you know that, uh, what was it, two to three million Iranians went in and volunteered for military service in Palestine, in, I- in Iraq? Yeah, for million.
0: two million in Iraq and four million in Iran, just from text campaigns.
1: Yeah, and, and, and if they ever did mobilize them, you you do know that all they have to do is get online in March, and uh, that's the end of Israel. Okay, it's literally, it's it's uh, the, the Battle of Iswala Hamda the zulus swamping the brits okay this ain't warwick's drift you're not going to be hiding in the in buildings against the rear rear guard the main body's coming at you and they're enraged they're online they're marching and when they finish you know it's all over it's like one of those scenes out of games of throne where you know the guys are there the cavalry comes in that battle outside of uh of uh i'm giving away my geekiness here but uh whatever that the uh, winter fell was where uh where that the, the the one army got caught and then the, the Bolton's army came in and swamped them. That's oh the
0: Battle it. of the Bastards.
1: Right, but the, the, the preliminary part of the Battle of the Bastards. Yeah. Okay. Where where the where where the, the man who would be king uh, got killed by uh the giant woman lady. Um but yeah, the giant
2: woman lady. Brianna. <laughs> Brianna. Brianna. Oh, you mean but, the siege mounted by Stannis oh, yeah. Baratheon that wasn't. Stannis that the Baratheon siege, siege
1: yes. that and you just watch the scene unfold. And what I'm trying to get at is if, if I'm not saying you can get 4 million Iranians and 2 million Iraqis to that theater, it isn't going to happen. But just understand that the amount of rage that's there. Um, Israel can't beat it. They ran two exercises where they that the conclusion was, we can't do it. So now Biden is telling them, you, you know, if you want any American assistance, you have to get let us get all our pieces in place. So Biden's playing a delaying game. Uh, he's talking about deploying Thad uh, air defense systems, Patriots. He's talking about getting more troops, and they're going to slow roll this. Watch it. Just watch how slow rolling it gets. You know, and hey, we got a couple C C1, one C seventeen shortages right now. It's going to take us another day and a half to get that Thad battery in place. Uh, guy was on emergency leave. We can't. They're going to slow roll this to try and get. The, and Netanyahu's getting pissed off. Why? Because he's in a political crisis right now. He was in a huge political crisis before all this started. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the street about his effort to change basic law to transform the judiciary from a separate but equal branch of government into a rubber stamp outfit that would forever keep him from being um, found guilty of the corruption that he has committed. Uh, and Israelis are just saying, "We don't want any part of this." So he's already there now. This came in. He's Mr. Security. Oh, there's threats out there. Iran has a nuclear, Iraq has a nuclear bomb. They did. Iran has a nuclear weapon. Really, BB? Because a couple of years ago, you were there with this cute little cartoon where you're drawn where the Iranian bomb was and you're telling us it's how it's over. But this last time there was no Iranian bomb and said, you're like, we're gonna go from India all the way through Saudi Arabia up to Haifa and then we're going on to Greece. It's a wonderful new world. Well, that world's gone, BB, because of you, because There was a security risk that you ignored, that you actually helped facilitate. You created Hamas. You breathed life in Hamas. And now Hamas came in and bitch slapped Israel. And everybody's blaming you as they should. So Bibi, the only way he can stay in power is to stop Israelis from taking a pause and start thinking about how they got here. Because once Israelis start to engage on that, once they have buried the dead and the anger has gone away, they say, holy crap, he's to blame. He's to blame. It's over for Bibi. So he needs a war. He needs a war now. He needs to go in. He needs to be the, the wartime leader. And I think he's getting pushback from his own people who are saying, boss, we ain't ready. Mm-hmm. We're just not ready for this. And the worst part is, I mean, now you have the Israelis generals. They're coming in. Some senior guys are saying, all right, um, if you want to go into Gaza, what we have to do is delay Gaza. And we have to go fight Hezbollah first. We have to fight Hezbollah first. We have to win that battle. And then we can do Gaza. But we can't do Gaza first and fight Hezbollah. We're going to lose that battle. And you know Netanyahu's just not believing. it. He's turning to America, saying, "You've got to back us up." And America's saying, "We ain't." I mean, you saw Biden afterwards. Because was like, "Well, those American carriers there to drop bombs on Hezbollah. They ain't going to drop a single bomb on Hezbollah. American sure. troops, Marines are going to land on the ground. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get involved in anything. If it bleeds over, we'll protect our our assets. But we're not going to get involved in that fight at all. One of the reasons why is we don't want Iran to get in the fight. What we're telling the Iranians now." I believe, I can't say with absolute certainty is guys. He's freaking crazy and he's going to go into Gaza. And there ain't anything we could do to stop him, but we're not going to get involved. What we're trying to do by projecting force is to give him confidence that if he doesn't go into Gaza, we're there for him, that no one will take advantage of your perceived weakness, but we're not getting in. So don't you get involved? Because if you get involved, Jesus, now we're in trouble. Now it's all, it's basically June, July, August, 1914, all over again, where the whole world just slow walking towards a global conflict that everybody saw coming. Nobody wanted, but nobody could do anything to stop. And that's what's happening here. Everybody, everybody, there's not a party here that is saying, this is the outcome we want. Everybody's saying it's the outcome we don't want. And yet because of Benjamin Netanyahu, it's the outcome that we're going to get because he is literally a man who is willing to sacrifice not only Israeli lives, but the lives of every man, woman, and child on the planet, because he wants to be prime minister. He doesn't want to go to jail. I don't know why we don't fly an airplane into Israel, tell him to get his ass on the airplane and we'll put him up in a $40 million mansion in Miami beach next to Zelensky. Yeah. Give him Zelensky's
0: mansion.
1: The two can sit there and drink wine all day or something, but he's, he's got to go, but it's, this is insane because there, I can't, even Hamas, <laughs> believe it or not, and when Iran came to Hamas after the bombing started, they went to the political element that's in uh, Qatar, I believe, and uh, they sat down, they said, you want us to come in? Hamas, no, boss, we got this under control. We got it. We, we, we're good. They're coming in. We're going to beat them up. That's, we, we got this all planned out. It's playing out, exa- and it is, it's playing out exactly how Hamas wants, because this is not about a military victory. This is about a political victory. This is about Israel discrediting itself so much about what it's done to the Palestinian people that the world will never forgive and the world can never turn a blind eye and something has to be done to solve this problem. And that's the political fight. That The sad thing is that Hamas is sacrificing the Palestinian people. This is a very cold blooded decision made by Hamas. They knew how Israel would react and they're letting Israel do it. Hamas is not Hezbollah. Keep that in mind. Nasrallah does not want that to happen to the people of Lebanon. Nasrallah does not want this to happen to the people of southern Lebanon, the Shia. He doesn't want it to happen to anybody. Nasrallah is a sane, rational thinker. Hamas is very radical, and they have made a cold-blooded decision that they are going to sacrifice two million Palestinians to achieve a political victory that it has them emerging empowered. And that's despicable. I understand why they're doing it. I understand why they believe they have to do it. I understand why they believe that there's no other justification for it. But my God, Look at those children. Look at the women. Look at the innocents that are being slaughtered. It's the Israelis killing them. But Hamas created the scenario that's allowed, that, that facilitated Israel into doing this. Hamas has a lot of blood on their hands. They are not innocent uh, victims to what, what's going on here. They are active participants in a tragic dance of death being waged between Hamas and Israel and the people caught in the middle of the Palestinians, and they're paying the heavy price. The heaviest of prices.
0: Well, I think on that foreboding note, we will end this stream. It's been two hours. I can't believe it's been two hours. It doesn't, it feels like five minutes. But I don't think that our audience needs to know, but you could tell them anyway where to find you these days. Cause I know you're not really on YouTube that much.
1: Well, we, we we're back on YouTube, but, um, mm. because hey, Jeff, Jeff Norman, good. who's my colleague who, uh, friend and colleague who he manages the, uh, because I'm literally just an idiot about everything in life. Um I read, I write and he ha- helps me get on the internet and uh and do this kind of stuff. I guess we're not monetized right now cuz YouTube's mad at us and um so we have to do some stuff in terms of um cuz I told him I don't care <laughs> cuz I'm an idiot and I just don't care <laughs> and uh and that I'll say whatever the hell I want to say when I want to say it how I want to say it and uh and he's like well Okay. But I'm in charge of asking the questions on ask the inspector. So I will ask soft questions up front that prevent you from saying something that gets YouTube to kick us off totally. And then halfway through we transition to rumble who apparently doesn't care about any of my answers. So there's, there's that going on, but that's all the politics behind the technology, et cetera. Everything I do can be found on Scott extra.com. It's a one-stop shop. Um, I have a sub stack. Uh, you can, um, you can subscribe. If I think you have to subscribe, but it's a free subscription, so mm-hmm. it's you don't have to pay. If you want to pay, thank you. Appreciate it. That's how I got. That's how I got this. And that's how I got this, and uh, <laughs> my anti-maverick device. You know, modern technology, um, and that's how I'm able to dedicate the time to do stuff like this. Because um, if I had to actually focus on, you know putting roofs on houses or digging ditches or whatever else 62 year old men do when they don't have a job. Um, you know, I, 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 couldn't do this. So, you know, this people's contributions are very important and I deeply appreciate them, but they're not required. That's the important thing is that no matter what I do, what I say, what I write, you can go to scoutriderextra.com and it's there free of charge.